This is Samboy Terry from Greet Death, and you are listening to The New Scene. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the new scene. I'm your host, Keith, and we're back with another brand new episode. And on the show today, we have the one, the only, Sean Leary of Loma Prieta and now Jerome's Dream. Loma Prieta has been at it for a while now. They're an excellent band on Death Wish Inc., and they've got a new record coming out last We talk about that. We talk about the history of Loma Prieta. We talk about Sean joining Jerome's Dream and recording their excellent new record, The Gray In Between, which you've heard me talking about. We cover everything. And that conversation is coming up shortly. But first, here's how you can support the new scene. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at New Scene Pod. Shirts. We've got shirts for sale at Death Wish Inc., Short sleeve, long sleeve, logo tees, a custom design shirt. We've got it all. Pick one up. It's a great way to support the show. Reviews. Give us five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And did you know that you can write a review on Apple Podcasts? And I've got a new one here right now from Evil Cause, and I am going to read it to you. Five stars. This brings some happiness to my day. I discovered this pod from the Philip Jameson episode, and I quickly found myself going to episode one and starting to listen to everything in chronological order. I play in bands, and I just love hearing all the good and bad band life scenarios. I also really appreciate Keith and Tommy's honesty and openness talking about addiction and mental health issues. You guys cover everything, light and dark along with some technical music conversation with a wide variety of guests. Sometimes you even manage to get an actual laugh out of me. Keep it up. It's great. Thank you, Evil Cause. I will keep it up. And I love when people go back and listen to all the episodes like that. It's still it's still unimaginable to me that Tommy and I started this thing kind of on a whim, and it's all out there, and people just pick up on it and go through the whole thing. I love it. I love it. Thank you, Evil Cause, and thank you, everybody who supports the show. All right, so moving on, don't forget to support Iodine Recordings. Jerome's Dream is on tour right now in support of their new record, The Gray In Between. Catch them if they're coming through your city. I'll be at the Brooklyn show June 2nd at St. Vitus. Come by, say hi. Best X have just released a new single, Tell Your Friends. It's available now on all streaming services. There Were Wires, Live Wires EP. This is a live recording of the band from February 2002, a performance they did on 88.9 WERS in Boston. And that's available now everywhere for streaming. Audio Karate, a show of hands EP is available now for pre-order. And the new single, A Show of Hands, is available now to stream everywhere. And finally, Quicksand will be playing Riot Fest. Have you picked up the re-release of Slip yet? It's out there. You should. It's Slip. Slip by Quicksand. I mean, come on. 
Don't forget to sign up for the iodine email list. You'll find out about everything first. For more information, head to the iodine Instagram at iodine recordings or to the iodine website at iodinerecordings.com. Also, don't forget to support this month's sponsor, Death Wish Inc. That's right, Death Wish Inc. You know them, you love them, and if you don't, you should. Now, Death Wish is historically a fantastic label, right? Right, we know that. But Greet Death, one of my favorite bands, is on Death Wish Inc. And if Greet Death was the only band on Death Wish Inc., I would take all of the money out of my bank account each month and send it directly to Death Wish Inc. And then hope that some of that money makes it to Greet Death. Telling you, I would. So here's what's going on at Death Wish. Converge is repressing Axe to Fall. That's one of my personal favorite Converge records right there. And now you can get this new repress on vinyl. It's a modern classic, and I say modern because to me, 2009 was five years ago. Also, Converge has upcoming tour dates with Brutus and Frail Body. You have to go to that. That's a killer lineup right there. Check out that show if it's in a city near you. Loma Prieta, last, is out June 30th. And you're going to hear all about that and more when we talk to Sean Leary momentarily. Gouge Away is back. And they have a new single, Idealized. They've got some select tour dates kicking off in July. Go check them out. For more information, head to the Deathwish Instagram at Deathwish Inc. Or to the Deathwish website at deathwishinc.com. Okay. Uh, how about we do some music recommendations? Now... I'm going to give you two. Incendiary. Change the way you think about pain. That just dropped. Great band. Great record. I was listening to it walking somewhere just yesterday, and I wanted to... What is, what is the lyrics in the one song? Every window deserves a brick. How good is that? How good is that? And you know what? Every window does deserve a brick. Except mine. Except mine. So let's keep it calm out there. But listen. Great record. Highly recommended. And the band... Dosser. Have you heard Dosser out of Maryland yet? They keep popping up in my Spotify radio, you know, like when you're listening to something and then it stops, it ends, and it just takes you to other bands in the in a similar vein. Well, Dosser keeps popping up and they're really good. Uh, let's see, what records? Violent Picture, Violent Sound. It's got a pink cover and Brain Scan. It's got a green cover. Those two records keep popping up and I really like what I hear. Check it out. All right, so listen, check back in with me after the interview with Sean. I'll tell you what's going on with me. It's Memorial Day weekend. I've got some time off. That's great. We'll talk about everything. But right now, we are going to speak to Sean Leary of Loma Prieta and Jerome's Dream. Enjoy.
All right. We are here now with Sean Leary. Sean, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for uh thanks for taking the time to have this conversation. Absolutely, Sean, and thank you for being here. You know, you've got a lot going on. We have a new Loma Prieta single. Could there be a new album? Could there not? We don't know, but we're going to find out soon. You have joined Jerome's Dream. That's exciting. They've got a new album coming up and we're going to get to all of that, Sean. But first, I have to ask you, how are you doing today? You know, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, it has been raining out here in California for weeks and weeks. And today I woke up and it was just beautiful outside. I mean, it was cold by California standards, but I feel uh, a little weight off my shoulders. You know, it's been so gloomy. And I live here because I don't like it gloomy. So, you know, we're back. That's amazing. Where in California are you? I'm in the Bay Area. I live in uh, I live in a city called Vallejo, which is the northernmost city on the San Francisco Bay. Okay. Yeah, it's a it's a cool little town. I moved out here a couple of years ago. I was in San Francisco for almost 20 years, and uh, now I'm doing something else, and it feels good. I love the Bay Area. I you know San Francisco is the only city I've been to where I was sad to leave it. <laughs> and come back to New York City. Uh-huh. Like I liked it that much. I like San Jose. I like everywhere I've been out there. It's really nice. It's a it's a really great part of the world. You know, I I grew up out here, and I've I mean I've left a couple times. I moved to the East Coast a couple times, and um, it it nothing felt permanent aside from you know as soon as I'd leave here, I'd kind of be like, well, this is interesting. It's cool being in a different place, but yeah, there's something special out here. And as expensive as it's gotten and everything, I've like thought about leaving. And I think that my stubbornness has kept me here because I'm like, well, I belong out here. You know, like my family's been out here for generations. I'm going to find a way to make it work. I think uh, my philosophy is if it's time to move somewhere else, I'll know it's time to move somewhere else. I'm in Brooklyn. I've been here for the past, let's see, 11 years now. And I've thought about leaving and I felt like I should leave because maybe times were bad. And I've even thought like, oh, no, I'm going to have to leave. Like. What if I meet somebody and like she wants to move out of the city? I'm going to have to move. And I'm and then I'm like, "Wait, you don't have to do anything. Like <laughs> you can just stay here. Like you can insist on staying here. You like can. you can make the decision to stay here forever if you want to." And I was like, "Oh, right. I'm just going to do that." I, it's totally it's in your court, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I I want that because it is hard to live here in New York City in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. But like I'm very lazy. So, you know, I like the idea of I I walk one block to the store. I walk one, two blocks to the grocery store. Right. I walk three blocks to the laundromat. Everything's very close. I don't know. I I need that. I know. I miss that. I miss that. That was how San Francisco was for me. And I spent spent a couple of years, half the time in Brooklyn, actually, because I had a girlfriend at the time that was living there. And two years of half the time was like enough New York City for me. But I also get it, you know, like it was I it was on the table. Like I was like, well, I, the reasonable thing would be for me to move to New York right now, but I'm just so West Coast, man. I can't. <laughs> I couldn't. And and honestly, I felt like I took that the energy of New York back with me after being there for six months out of the year for a couple of years. And that was kind of why I think I ended up leaving San Francisco because I was getting so... Um, like I was just pissed off all the time by everything, <laughs> like just by being in close proximity to people. And I'm like, that's typical... I feel like that's typical New York behavior and I sort of love it. Yeah. You know, I don't know, man, maybe I'm too sensitive for that or something. It just wasn't, 
if I felt like I was just, you know, deteriorating, I was like, man, I need some fucking space. Got to get away from all these people. Yeah, I feel like that too. I, I spend a lot of time at home, but that that's, you know, that's fine. I get out enough. It's fine. There's, there's everything balanced. Right. So wait, is it, it's raining up there too? I, people are telling me it's snowing out there. It's cold. Like what is going on? Dude, it was, it fully was snowing out here. I mean, not at my house, but in, you know, above a thousand feet, it was snowing last week. And that is unheard of. Like, you know, I've been out here for, I mean, aside from the couple of years I spent away, it's like, I've been out here for 40 something years and it's maybe that's happened once. So that was cool. You know? That is wild. I, you know, like, like you're talking about when it was nice out today and you just felt some hope. I felt that this past Sunday because, you know, it's the dead of winter. It's cold. It's a mild winter, but you still feel it. And I went outside Sunday night, five o'clock to go get food as I always do. And it was still light out Mm -hmm. at 5 p.m. And I was like, oh my God, spring is coming. And I I felt a glimpse of hope for a moment. (laughs) It was nice. Uh, yeah, I know the feeling well. Yeah, we're we're getting there. We're going to get through this. We have to. We just have to. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sean, let's get to know you. you. Did you grow up in the Bay Area? I did. I grew up um, not far from where I live now. I grew up uh, an hour north of San Francisco in a town called Petaluma. We're kind of outside of Petaluma. I grew up in the country. And it was an interesting place to grow up. It's funny because it's, uh, I think, because San Francisco is so wealthy that it's become this fancy place. But when I was a kid, it was definitely poor hippie people like my mom was and then farmers. It's sort of a Northern California thing. Like once you get past the Bay Area, there's from north of the Bay all the way up to like Oregon is sort of this strange thing where it's like very conservative people and very liberal people kind of trying to coexist, I guess. So that was my experience growing up in the 80s and 90s in uh, in the North Bay. But it was a cool place to grow up. And there was, you know, as it turned out, when I got to be like 13, there was totally like a punk scene and a cool venue and um, a lot of like interesting local bands and stuff. So, it, you know, I feel fortunate all the time that I grew up there, even though I just fucking hated it so much when I was a teenager and I had to, I was just trying to get out like as soon as I could. Tell us about, you mentioned that there was a local venue and a punk scene. I'm interested in your history with music leading up to discovering punk? I mean, did, were you always interested in music as a kid growing up? Yeah, I, I really was. And I think my, um, you know, neither of my parents were musicians, but they both really um, like loved music as it sort of felt like really like the main form of entertainment in my house. And it was, you know, it wasn't like there was specifically like sophisticated music being played or anything, but it was just important. I think that my mom really connected with the stuff that she'd come up with, which was all like the hippies, you know, the Beatles and, uh, and, and kind of like older stuff than that. Like a lot of doo-wop and, you know, like really old oldies, pre pre hippie oldies, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Remember when oldies meant like fifties stuff? Yeah. I, I, uh, it's funny. I'm so nostalgic for that stuff because when I was a kid in the eighties, it would be like, we listened to oldies radio everywhere we went, like when we were driving and, Oldies at the time, they never played the Beatles on the oldies station when I was a kid. It was fully like Dion and the Belmonts or some shit, you know? Like it was like yeah. old shit. 
You you just jogged my memory as you're talking because my parents listened to the 70s and 80s classic rock Beatles hippie stuff. Right. And there was this station oldies 98 that would play all the doo wop stuff and they like that too. Yeah, man, I'm I'm still all about it. You know, strange as that sounds, uh, you know, has yeah doesn't seem to have a lot of influence on the music I make, but I like listening to it. Yeah, I would say not. <laughs> <laughs> and talk about discovering punk rock and the scene in your town what kind of bands did you see what grabbed you you know it's interesting it was like the trajectory seems like when i think back on it it all happened so fast right because it was like first when i was like a little kid i have a you know an older half brother who he's 16 years older than me so i remember being like four or five and he was playing me all this stuff that just seemed wild to me at the time like i mean he played like acdc or like uh he's really into x you know and b52s and rem and yeah, a lot of like new wave stuff. And so I kind of had that as like a base layer. And then I guess when I got to be like 11 or 12, you know, Nirvana became like the most popular band in the world. And I couldn't really like differentiate it from like, I was just like, I like Nirvana. I like Public Enemy. I like Metallica. I like Guns N' Roses, you know, like, and they were all the same. They were just like cool music to me. So it's kind of interesting. Then it was like, because I like Nirvana above all the other bands, then I started meeting all these other like, you know, scummy rocker kids at school, probably in like seventh grade. And a couple of them were, I don't really know how they were into it, but they were just super into the local punk scene. And so we had a venue in town and it became like trying to get permission to go to shows, usually couldn't, a lot of like sneaking out at night to go to shows because my mom wouldn't let me and that kind of stuff. and. I don't know. It was a really like the more entrenched I got in that specific scene of of um, kind of like north of the San Francisco Bay Area punk scene. It was a fucking weird punk scene because it didn't really specifically connect with what was going on like in Berkeley at Gilman or anything. Although I did start going to shows there a little later on, but it was cool because it was all really tied into politics and like activism. And uh, there were a lot of like really great bands, but you know, no one ever left the area. So it's interesting because I'm like in the mid nineties, I was seeing all these shows that I still think back on and buying all these tapes and seven inches and stuff of bands that I think were really talented, but they like never played anywhere except, you know, my hometown and the adjacent towns. Although strangely, one of the first shows I ever went to at that venue, just because it was like a punk show, I was probably 13. I went and saw this band called AFI who were from a town even smaller than I was from. And the AFI? The AFI. <laughs> and they were probably like in high school at the time because they're a little bit older than me. Not much. Wow. But yeah, it was super funny just because I only went because my friends were like, all right, dude, we're going to go skate. We're going to go to this punk show. You know, we're going to like get into whatever trouble, try and smoke some weed or something. And yeah, we went and saw this band and it was just like fucking out of control in there. You know, I mean, they were probably... It was probably a hundred people there or something, but it seemed massive and crazy. And they were clearly people about my age. And it was just fucking, you know, it's like hilarious to think back on because they were AFI from Ukiah, which is like really like the middle of fucking nowhere still, <laughs> you know, and, and they later moved to Berkeley and became a really big band probably five years after this. When you saw them at that point, I mean, did they seem special? Were people really going off? Like, what was your impression at that time? They did, but I think I didn't, I didn't have enough of like a primer. Like it was probably the third or fourth, like, you know, local punk show that I'd been to. And so I was like, well, this is clearly bigger 
than me going and seeing these other bands that I'm aware of locally. You know, like there were enough people for it to be a crazy ass pit and stuff like that. So I knew enough to know that like musically they were doing something that was pretty tight and really good. Um, they were, you know, they were a really different band then than they became. Yeah, I could, I, you know, I wasn't like, I didn't, I didn't see it and go like, this band's going to be huge, you know, but I didn't have the, like, that wasn't even in my uh, way of thinking yet at that point, you know, it was just like, this is a crazy experience. That was, I think, all I took away from it. Yeah, because I mean, you can't necessarily see it at first. It's it's very interesting how that works with bands sometimes. Like I was in a YouTube wormhole the other month and there's like an old video of My Chemical Romance playing, I think, the Fireside Bowl in Chicago. Oh, yeah. And they look and sound just like any other band you'd see in the late 90s or early 2000s or whenever it was. And I'm just like, wow, like, how does it happen? It's wild. It, it is really interesting. It's it's a funny thing. And, I, you know, it's like you hear those stories often talking to people. And, like, I guess I heard, you know, I've heard the other side, too, where, like, the James, the bass player from Loma Prieta, who he's, you know, born and raised out in Florida. And he was telling some story recently where he was like, he went to a show some band that was on tour had jumped on and like everyone stood outside while they played, but he watched them and they were fucking, he's like, dude, this band's going to be huge. And they were called fallout boy. And, <laughs> and like, you know, shortly thereafter, like they got a deal, you know, a year later or something. And he was like, I knew it, you know, like this band, you know, whatever you think about fallout boy, clearly they're like, uh, put on a good show or whatever. They're entertainers, you know? So, you know, say what you will about fallout boy, but when you listen to them and I'm talking about like the first record, because I can hear the singles in my head, right? It sounds super polished. The recording is super good. The guy can sing, you know, you can hate the song fine, but it, it sounds like it has mass appeal. You can't deny that. Right, right. And you know, that kind of stuff bubbles to the top in punk, punk rock sometimes. And most of it has not been for me. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, I like shit that sounds totally disgusting, but yeah, it's interesting. You know, it's funny. It's a funny thing with, with punk rock and sort of our attitudes about success and making it, it's kind of like when a band is successful by the terms of society at large, like punks are not any longer like down with it. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. you can't be part of the subculture and be part of the larger culture, I guess. And that, I think that's fair. And uh, yeah, that makes sense. Were you into Green Day at all? That's like a Bay Area thing, right? Dude, this is a funny thing, right? Like, I remember starting seventh grade, and it was just terrible. You know, I'm like starting junior high school. And the first couple of weeks, they were like, okay, we're going to have a career day. And you're going to like, you know, write out your things you want to do with your life or whatever on this piece of paper. And at this point in time, like, the notion of playing in a band hadn't even really occurred to me yet. It had probably started to later that year. But I put musician as like my top thing. And so, you know, they would have these experts in the field speak. And this dude, this like British guy was speaking to us and he's like, yeah, I'm a sound engineer. I'm not, you know, I'm not the producer, but like, I'm the guy that like mics things. And everyone's like, well, what, what have you worked on? Anything we've heard of? And he said, oh, you know, I just finished recording this, this band called Green Day. Like no one our age had heard of them. I'm sure they were like massive in the punk scene at this point, but we were all 12 and 13. Yeah. Um, and so it was like this funny thing where he said that and then dude, probably like four months later, Green Day was like on MTV and they were huge. But honestly, yeah, it was like I was into them sort of on the level that I was like into Nirvana and, you know, Pearl Jam, whatever else was just, you know, 
as far as marketing was concerned, it's all just like alternative rock or whatever. Yeah, that's how I got into it. Because you see all this stuff on MTV, and I'm not thinking like punk scene, alt scene, rock scene. I'm just thinking like Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Green Day. These are all good bands that I listen to. Right, right. That was the beginning of seventh grade. And then by like the end of seventh grade, I was already kind of like, I was like growing my hair long, skating, going to punk shows. And then all the older punk kids I met were like, fuck Green Day, man. Like we're going to protest the Green Day show. They're on a major label. <laughs> like that's bullshit music. And and I was, you know, young and impressionable. And I was kind of like, yeah, that shit sucks. But I'm like, well, you know, deep down, this shit is really catchy. And, you know, it's like musically, it's undeniable. Like Dookie's a great record. Yeah. They're very like unique band and they're great performers. Yeah, I've gone full circle. It started as, hey, these are all cool bands I listen to. Then I was like, fuck the the mainstream stuff or most of it. And I was only into hardcore. Mm. Then I was like only into emo. And I was like, uh, you know, I'm too cool for anything heavy. Then I was just into whatever, you know, only obscure stuff, only into post rock. Mm -hmm. And then I was kind of into whatever. Now I've circled all the way back around. And it's just like in fourth grade again. I'm like, I just listen to bands. I don't give a shit. Like, <laughs> I'll fucking listen to Jerome's Dream in one minute and then Collective Soul the next. I don't care. Dude, it's so liberating, right? Right. What about you? How has your uh, progression been like that? Um, Probably pretty similar. I mean, yeah, it's interesting. Lately, it feels like I feel a little stifled in what I what I listen to sometimes. And honestly, too, because I've been so busy with band stuff for the last, I don't know, decade. I mean, I feel like I'm always working on a record and I have limited free time and there's always something going on where it's like, okay, well, we got this new mix or there's these demos or this stuff that I have to learn. So it's a lot of my music listening time is taken up, like actually listening to my own bands, which I don't, I can't say like, I enjoy that. You know what I mean? Like, that's not, I don't think that's like a healthy, uh, relationship to have with music but it does end up being a big part of it and then aside from that i'm kind of all over the place it's like i do check out a lot of new hardcore stuff that comes out but i also am i really like just straight up like pop rap stuff and you know ambient stuff trying to think and then i you know i just i spend a lot of time going back to the 90s because i can't help it you know (laughs) yeah no i i like the sound of this i'm i listen to all that stuff ambient pop rap stuff 90s stuff. I'm checking out new heavy bands. I'm checking out new emo bands. It doesn't matter. As long as it's good, it's it's good. Yeah, that's my feeling too. And I kind of just, you know, I wish that I had the amount of time to devote to seeking music as I did 20 years ago or 25 years ago, you know, like when I was in my, I kind of, it's funny. I actually got this, um, I was texting my buddy the other day who I grew up with and I hadn't talked to in a long time. And he like sent me a picture of this, you know, reissue record by this band Trackstar that we grew up really liking who were like this super emo, like two guitar, no bass San Francisco band back when, I mean, in the mid nineties. And he's like, I got this record reissued. And then he's like, man, I want to thank you for like turning me on to so much good music when we were growing up. And it was like this very like nice compliment. And then I had to sort of like turn inward and go like, damn, dude, that's crazy. Like I did really, my identity was very much set up around like seeking music and spending all my money on records and being like really, really opinionated about music. Like I just fucking hated shit when I didn't like it. And I loved stuff so much when I did like it. Yeah. And, um, and I think that kind of what happened was like once playing in bands took a front seat and became really like what I consider myself to be like doing with my life. Like I stopped having money to go buy records and 
Um, cause I was just spending it on equipment and trying to, tour, you know, you're losing money going on tour and all the shit that you do, uh, playing in punk bands. And so, yeah, it's funny. It's kind of like, I'm like, man, my record collection was looking awesome. And then around 2002 or something, it was really, I fell off pretty hard, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's because you're part of it now instead of just a participant, which is good. It's a logical progression. Like, uh, I used to just listen to music and I had a lot more free time. Now. Now I'm involved with a band and doing this podcast, which is weekly. So, you know, it, it, I'm, I'm in it instead of just listening to it. So there, there's, there's not as much time. It sounds like the same thing for you. But uh, mm -hmm. let's talk about some of your early days playing leading up to Loma Prieta. Mm -hmm. When did you start playing? How? Lay it on us. I started playing, I think I started playing in bands well, okay. First I had like a crappy guitar from probably the time I was nine or 10. And I had that older half brother who was like in some fucking wicked cover bands and stuff. Like he was just rocking in the eighties. And so it was kind of like, he taught me a couple riffs and I think I, yeah, I managed to get my dad to buy me a guitar for Christmas when I was probably nine or 10. But then when I was in seventh grade, I somehow got the idea that it would be so much cooler if I played drums. And so, you know, I had like some money from mowing lawns and doing whatever odd jobs, saving up some allowance or something. And I ended up finding this piece of shit drum set and buying it. And, uh, you know, I was terrible, but then because I had a drum set and some like, uh, shithead friends at school, it just sort of was like the school was small enough. I had a drum set. So I started playing music with some people and, before long, one of those people that I played with, he it was like his mom would allow us to play at their house. So I had to leave my drums over there. And like within like two or three weeks of me leaving my drums over there, he was so much better than me at drums. And it was, like, <laughs> it was so funny. It was like, okay, well, I have a guitar and I can kind of play that. So I like, you know, like refocused my, I was like, okay, well, I better really get serious about this guitar thing because Devin's really good at drums. <laughs> um, and so, you know, that was sort of like the basis of everything. And that dude, Devin, is still, you know, my best buddy. And we've played in bands together for, I mean, since then, it's been like almost 30 years. It's crazy. But um, yeah, and he's still a really fucking good drummer and better than me at guitar. And, you know, <laughs> probably most things. He's a really good musician. At least uh, when you're that young, you have the foresight to be like, okay, he's the drummer now. I'm going to play guitar instead of stubbornly be like, being like, no, I have to be better at drums. I'm going to drum. <laughs> well, it was like, I mean, it was just head and shoulders. I was like, this guy clearly has like a natural aptitude towards this. And I mean, I did keep playing drums probably for two or three years after that because it's just fun to do. But yeah, it was just like, I was never going to catch up. And all I really wanted to do was like hang out and play music anyway. So it just kind of made logical sense. And I had a guitar and stuff. So it was like, I had a guitar, but I needed an amp and I didn't really know what to do. So I like bartered, you know, you'd like barter shit when you're that age. I don't know if kids still do that, but I was fully like, all right, man, I'm going to trade this Beck CD because I don't care about Beck anymore because I'm punk. And I'm going to trade like this jacket. I traded some dude like this collection of weird crap for this, this little like crate amp. And, uh, that's where it all started, man. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I think that still happens. Like the bass player in my band, I think he traded his bass for some weed or, or wait, he got his <laughs> bass by trading some weed or something like that. And I was like, that's a good deal. Weed sucks. I'm telling you, man, that's, this is how, you know, careers are formed. <laughs> 
So you get started playing locally. What were some of the first bands you were in? Oh man. Uh, I'm trying to think the first bands that I, I think the first band I ever played a show with was a, uh, basically like a pop punk band that was called the disappointments. It would have been about 1995 mm-hmm. and we were really bad. <laughs> and then I think I, then I was in a band called King man that didn't do, you know, did the same kind of shit. And then I was in a band called X which was my first, uh, I guess the first band I was in this, I would have been maybe 15 or 16 when we started this band. And it was definitely more like angular shit. Like it's like, kind of like, this is the other thing too. I think that like, there was no internet as far as I, I mean, it existed. I had never, I didn't use the internet at that point. And so I get into these bands, but like, I had no concept of like whether they were similar or whether they were similar in popularity. And so I was kind of like, well, I like sunny day real estate and pavement and born against and shop maker. And I just want to do all that. I was like, well, they probably all play shows together, man. Like they're all really fucking good, you know, (laughs) (laughs) like no concept. So anyway, I was in this band that I think was trying to kind of like somehow fit all that stuff in. It was like a noisy indie core kind of band. I started a band like maybe in 1999 or something. And I think we didn't tour until probably 2000. We were called Archaeopteryx. And that was kind of the band that I ended up meeting the guys from Loma Prieta through, you know, yeah, because we actually got out toward toward the West Coast a lot for probably four or five years. Were you touring like the whole U.S. in that band? No, we never really made it off the West Coast. And I always wanted to, but it was the kind of thing. I think I had that thing growing up where it was like I had really good friends that I played music with who were really talented, but I was kind of like the only guy who was like, I will sacrifice anything to for the band like i'll do anything to go on tour you know like that kind of thing and it would be like so i was always booking tours and then it would be like someone in the band would be like you know you'd be a week away and they'd be like oh i forgot to get the time off work like that kind of shit and it was just so frustrating for me you know because i was like it's still the same you know bands are fucking impossible because you're always reliant on other people and like it's what makes it so good as a form of creativity i think because you kind of in the right format in a band, you like get the best from all parties involved and you make something that you could never have made by yourself. Right. None of you could have, you know, but it's such a weird, like familial relationship to be in a band with people. And when, you know, when things are out of balance like that, it's hard, you know, it's, it's like, I feel like I have known so many musicians over the years who I'm like, they're super talented. They just like got attached to these other people who didn't care as much to make it work. It's not even about talent. I think a lot of times it's like bands who like put in enough energy and have good enough luck end up sometimes like breaking through, you know? Yeah. Cause sometimes people just aren't, it's just not their priority. Sometimes. Did you see that hard times headline recently? It was like unemployed band living together in punk house. Can't find the time to practice or something like that. <laughs> It was, <laughs> that really spoke to me. It, it, that, it's like, yes, like no matter what the situation is, like somebody's always got something else to do or there's like something else going on. It's just something, you know, sometimes you just can't pull it together. Yeah, I know. I know. It's, it's, uh, so that, I mean, but that is what makes it that much better, I guess, when you find people who are, it, so many things have to line up for it to be great. You know what I mean? You have to like find people who are committed enough to show up and you have the same taste in things, and you like the way each other play, and those things mesh, and you know what I mean? There's, It's sort of amazing that it ever works at all. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, 100%. <laughs> so talk about the beginning of Loma Prieta. How does it come together? 
how do we start getting out on the road? It's funny, actually. There's a there's a, a Jerome's Dream connection here, too, in a strange way. My band Archaeopteryx had been getting fairly, you know, like established on the West Coast for a couple of years. And I got, let's see, I'm trying to think how this went down. It was like, I got an email from this dude and he was like, hey, I'm booking this show. It's at a cafe with my band and uh, Jeff from Jerome's Dream's new band. And I was like, all right, man, we're there. You know, I love Jerome's Dream. I knew that they had broken up. This would have been 2003 or something. Mm -hmm. And so we showed up to the show and then he was like, you know, this guy, Derek, who I'd never talked to aside from his email was like, oh man, yeah, Jeff's band had to drop. But anyway, you know, here we are. <laughs> and I was sort of like, fuck man. Okay. Well, great. And like this dude, Derek, I don't even think his band had any music online or anything. So I had no idea what to expect. They were called sailboats and I saw them play and they were just like fucking phenomenal. So I became good friends with like he and Val who uh, Val played drums. And basically like, you know, we started just giving each other a call when we go to shows or whatever. So there were probably like a year or two there where we were just buddies and would see each other at shows. And then I think I Val came to an Archaeopteryx show or something. And I was like, hey man, like you live, we live 10 miles from each other. Let's play sometime. And we got together and played and it was just sort of like, th there was totally musical chemistry right away. And he's like, ah, let me see if Derek wants to play. Like he just sold all of his gear because he's like overplaying in bands, but let's see, well, you know, let's see what we can do. <laughs> and so we got, we got Derek to come play. And he also is like a fucking shredder. He was, he played in Loma Prieta on the first two LPs. So it was like that. And it was kind of funny because at that point in my life, I was probably 24 or something. And those guys were, I don't know, 19, like they're, or 20. They were, they're younger than I am. And I felt at that point, like just prior to starting playing music with those guys, it was like Archaeopteryx wasn't doing that much. Like my buddy Devin had gotten married and kind of had gotten like a more serious job, which I kind of still are like out of my wheelhouse, you know? And I, I was having these thoughts where I was like, dude, I'm 24, man. I'm going to be 25. Like I'm old. It's time to hang it up. You know, like that kind of <laughs> shit where I was like, I can't find anyone to play music with. Everyone my age is like getting married. You know, it was like, everyone's got serious shit to do. And it's like really comical to look back at that thought process now, because now I'm just like this dude in his forties who's still, I mean, I'm probably devoting more time to it than I was then. Yeah. Same here. You know, like I, I remember being mid to late twenties and being like, Oh, it's all over. <laughs> but now I'm 41 and it, it's just getting started. It doesn't matter what age, you know, you can do it whenever you want to do it. It doesn't. And it's, it, it was too much about like looking towards my peers and seeing what they were doing. And I mean, on some level, it's like I looked like at those people's lives now. And sometimes I'm like, man, that looks really easy and simple. Like I've definitely chosen the hard road here, haven't I? You know? Yeah. But it's, I'm, the grass is always greener, I guess. Always. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, that was how Loma Prieta got started. And in that scenario, it was the kind of thing where like, like I remember we had not been playing that long and Val was like, Hey, I'm going to book a U.S. tour. I was like, okay, like we have five songs. I'm like, let's, fucking go, man. Like I've never been in a band with anyone that has even like given the time of day to doing a US tour. And so that kind of motivation and momentum, like it, it really like carried the band, you know, I mean, we just, I think that like that attitude has sort of always been there where it's like, this is what we find fun. I'm not exactly sure why there's a lot of suffering involved, <laughs> but yeah, we've kept it going. I love that. Yeah. Didn't you self-release the first couple LPs on your own label too? Yeah, it was it was Val's label and 
Yeah, I want to say the first three records, first three LPs, and there were a couple EPs too that he put out kind of up until we ended up starting putting stuff out with Death Wish, which was, I think, 2012. Yes. Yeah, I mean, everything was totally DIY for a very long time. And large aspects of that band still are. I think just because we're particular, you know, like we could probably use more help than we have, but the idea of like handing over control to people seems scary or something, you know, like, or just like angering more than scary. Like we're like, well, I know we're going to hate the way anyone else does it. So I guess we have to do it ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. I feel that that's why I do almost every aspect of this show by myself, but, and it's a lot of work, but that's how I want it. Yeah, totally. Then you have final say, you know what I mean? It's kind of like, you want to be as close to it as possible because you care about it, you know? Exactly. No, I like the DIY spirit, though, which is something I didn't understand until recent years, the amount of work you have to put into it, and that if someone doesn't do it for you, you can just go out and do it yourself. Like, you can you book your own U.S. tour and you go out and do it. You put out your own records. Too much of my life, I was sitting around thinking, like, someone was going to discover what a massive talent I was and like pull me up into some great pre-existing situation, but that doesn't work unless you're like Justin Bieber or some, you know, massive talent or some shit like that. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I know it's, and it, you know, it happens, but yeah. Yeah. It's the, the flip side of it is like, you know, I grew up on Fugazi and very much, you know, like the ethics of that band had like shed a lot of light on the way that I was trying to approach music. But at some point I kind of realized like, with Loma Prieta, you know, once we kind of started, I mean, it took us a while. It took us, you know, like six or seven years of touring a lot, putting out our own records, all this stuff before I really felt like things were starting to like turn for us and people were paying attention. There was excitement. And then like booking agents started reaching out and management and stuff like that. And I realized that the reason we didn't want to do it was like selfish. Like it was totally like self-preservation where I'm like, I don't want someone else like having access to like portray our band in a certain way. Like I don't want to have to play with bands that I think are whack. Like, yeah. Like I don't care about, obviously I care about our band. Like I don't want our band to implode. And on some level, it's kind of like your band has to, you have to achieve something. Like you can't just totally eat shit on tour. You know what I mean? But yeah. So it was that thing where I had this realization where I was like, Oh fuck man. Like maybe Fugazi were DIY because that just made way more sense for them. And maybe they definitely they made a lot more money releasing their own records and booking their own tours than they would have if they'd gotten like caught up in this like music industry machine you know what i mean yeah i mean ian's got the notoriety he's got the label he doesn't really need anybody else and it it certainly doesn't seem like they wanted it uh to be like mainstream on that level so there you go right right and they didn't need to so you know, it's interesting. I mean, not to not to compare my bands with Fugazi, you know, we'll never uh, <laughs> no, no one will ever reach those heights. But no, it's interesting to think about. I was I was just thinking about this today. Like I, I heard I was in the scene, you know, I was listening to the bands. I would hear this stuff all the time, DIY or die and all that stuff. But I I was just thick headed. I would just think it was all stupid. And then like <laughs> I'm sitting here today, like getting ready to do the podcast. And I'm like, wow, if I had actually listened to some of that and applied it, who knows what I could have done? Like, I I understand it all now, Mm -hmm. but better late than never. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, there's plenty of lessons to be learned throughout this whole thing. You know, the creative process is sort of should be all about learning, I guess. Yeah. So you said six years 
of touring and playing shows and all of this stuff until booking agents and everybody else started reaching out to you? Yeah, it just kind of felt like until we put out a record on Death Wish. Well, the funny thing with that was too, you know, that was our fourth LP that came out on Death Wish. Was that IV? Yeah. And almost everywhere we went after that, people would be, I don't remember how the question was framed, but people basically thought we were a new band. And I was like, oh no, God, you know, we've been a band for eight, we've been playing for eight years and touring for seven or something at that point. It's amazing how that happens, right? I'll have bands on the show and I'm like, oh, wow, this is an exciting and awesome new band that must have come out this year. And then I start researching and they've been around for like 15 years and I'm like, whoa, (laughs) wow, you just don't know until you know. Exactly. It happens to me all the time with bands, you know, like there's so much music out there. So I'm not, yeah, I was definitely not faulting anyone, but it was that kind of thing where I'm like, oh yeah, it's interesting. Like I never gave any like uh, credibility to the idea that like being on a label would help, you know, I was like, well, that's stupid. Like who cares if the music's good, people will seek it out. Like I always did back in the day, but it's, you know, things also like changed a lot between when I was really like stacking up my record collection and getting crazy with all that stuff. It was like, you would basically order stuff uh, without hearing it oftentimes because of like reviews, you know, like I just like had a subscription to heart attack and that was my, like, you know, all I paid attention to was that. And then, you know, you'd like, you'd buy a record, you thought it was cool. Oftentimes there would be like an insert inside of it. that would be like some giant distro that some kid was running and it would just be descriptions of bands. And that was how I bought a lot of stuff. Um, A lot of my favorite records, you know, like records that totally changed my life. It's crazy to think about that. And so you know, of course, like Loma Prieta comes around, it's like definitely during the like MySpace era, you know, where it's like, you can go and hear like, two songs of a band online, which was revolutionary. And of course, by the time like, you know, 2012, and we are kind of on a record label for the first time, and that kind of thing, like, the music universe was already like inundated, you know, at that point, you could basically find anything you wanted. And I mean, back then it would be like you just download it all for free. Like that was the sort of pre-Spotify thing. Yeah. Once, I don't know, 2002 hit, the, or once the year 2000, 2001 hit, you could just download anything you want all the time. Right. Yeah. And there was a good 10 years there where that was kind of like the, just the standard. So yep. yeah, it was kind of, I'm kind of like, well, it got to a point where you, maybe we like needed that little bump of visibility, just being, you know, involved with this label that people knew that they liked the bands on that label. And I think at the time too, Death Wish were were putting out a ton of releases. And so people were looking to that label, like the way that I'd looked to, um, like when I was a kid, it would be like anything that came out on Gravity Records, I would buy because whether or not I liked it, I knew it was going to be challenging. I felt like I should like it, even if I didn't, you know what I mean? It was that kind of thing. Yeah. You kind of have these labels that you just you trust them. You trust that, yeah, you trust that they're putting out like music that's important or whatever. So, you know, it was it was fortunate for us in the, in the sense that Death Wish like took the chance on us at that point. And the marketing works because I didn't hear Loma Prieta till later because I don't, I don't mm-hmm. know what I was doing in 2000, I don't know, 12. Right. Who knows? Right. I can't remember. But I saw the record cover and I remember it. Oh, cool. Like I remember that gray record cover. I remember the band name. Like I, I recognized it. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, not only is there so much music, there's so much good music, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I feel, I feel bad about all the great shit that I've never heard. You just haven't heard it yet. Exactly. It comes to you when it comes to you, even if you're not looking like I'm not always actively seeking new music. I kind of am because of this show, but I'm also not because I'm busy a lot of the times. 
but it just, it finds you. Right. It just finds you. God, I hope so. It will. Yeah. It does. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I guess you saw a nice bump once you signed with Deathwish, right? Yeah. It felt like, I mean, you know, I think some things sort of fell into place for us, maybe around 2010 or something. It just was like, I don't remember specifically what was going on, but I think Val had been at school the whole time. Like he, he went to law school. And so there was, it was sort of like we were able to tour for the first few years, like only in the summer and sporadic things or whatever. And then it all hit where it was kind of like, we were all like sort of half unemployed. He wasn't in school anymore. And we just started being like, let's fill all of our time with touring. So that, I mean, maybe 2012 was reaping the benefits of a couple of years of being way more present leading up to that. But whatever it was, it just started feeling like we weren't struggling to get shows. And we would sometimes show up to places and be like, wow, this there's twice as many people here as last time, like that kind of thing. That's awesome. Yeah. So it definitely speaks to the power of like touring a lot. And maybe that was just for our band, because I know I've talked to people who are sort of like, yeah, man, we toured a lot. We toured, you know, constantly for five years and it just felt like it was going nowhere. So we stopped or whatever. And I don't know, like I was saying earlier, I think a lot of it just has to do with good luck. And I also think like BK who plays in Lomo has a like a crazy aesthetic sense. And I think that like a big part of um, the success of the band, you know, which I use air quotes and saying success because, you know, <laughs> we're not, we're, you know, we're no big deal. But like, I think that a lot of the reason that we've um, stood out is because he, Brian is really good at like portraying our band using visuals that like speak very much to how we sound and the feel of our band and like creates sort of a whole narrative, you know? Yeah. The aesthetics are great. Like I'm talking about, I recognize that album cover from whenever I saw it. And, you know, I didn't hear the band until later and the band doesn't exactly sound like everything else, which is always good. Mm -hmm. It's just the whole presentation is great. Well, thank you. Yes. That's a nice thing to, it's a nice thing to say. Of course. So the last LP was in 2015, Self-Portrait? Yeah, yeah. Now, I think there's been a couple singles since then, maybe a split, right? Yeah. Um, I'm trying to even think. I feel like there's only been like a single, maybe? There's a There was a new single that came out in July of 2022, Sunlight, yes? Oh, yeah, yeah. And we, we put out a seven inch, uh, I guess in 2020, but it had been recorded a couple years before. So what happened after 2015? What's going on? <laughs> Yeah, good question. <laughs> well, I think actually, I guess I can sum it up pretty easily. It's like, I think in 2015, maybe 2014, our other guitar player, Brian, moved to New York. And we'd already, James, our bass player, since I think 2013, has lives in Jacksonville, Florida. So we went from three of us being in the Bay Area, who, you know, Brian had been in the band since the second LP. So it was kind of like the core of the band was all in one place and we'd all been playing together for the majority of the band. And then when he moved to New York, I think it really like slowed our progress, you know? And so it became the thing where we carve out time for the band, but it would be like, okay, well, it's either a tour or it's for writing. So we were kind of splitting the time. And then it just took us forever to like, like with this record that's coming out this year, we just kept writing and writing and throwing stuff away. And, you know, I just think we were kind of like, well, there's no pressure. There's no reason for us to just force a record, you know? Yeah. And I think we're all kind of like getting more critical as time goes on, you know? And so it's the kind of thing where we're like, well, we don't need a record to be out for tour. We never put anything out that we're not totally happy with. So it just took forever for us to basically like, you know, we've, I mean, we have to have come up with 30 or 40 ideas. And then in the end, you know, we finally kind of like got it together, but it, 
but it ended up really being like Brian ended up getting like a contract job in the Bay Area for a year. And so then suddenly the three of us were in the Bay again. And we'd already been like flying back and forth and like sending stuff, you know, sending emails and stuff, sending songs back and forth. So we had the basis of like a lot of good ideas. And then once we were able to kind of be like, all right, we're going to get in the studio, the practice space, like, you know, two or three times a week and like hammer on this stuff for a year. And especially it kind of got to like, I guess the pandemic kind of fucked us up, but in a way kind of focused us too. to like, we probably had half the record written before, before the pandemic dropped on us. Yeah. And then I guess eventually, you know, it was kind of like we were like sending a lot of stuff back and forth. We were kind of like able to play everyone. We were kind of in a bubble together, I guess, because it was like none of us were really around other people aside from like our partners. And so we would get in the studio and work on this shit all masked up and as far away from each other as possible. Yeah. Yeah. Remember the COVID bubbles? Like who's in your bubble? Is it safe? Dude, it was, it was, I felt like I was going back to the MySpace top eight or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) It was like, all right, like you're going to be in my bubble. Yeah. We got to be tight, you know? (laughs) So there is a new record coming. There's a new record coming out on June 30th of this year. Ooh. It's called Last and it I don't know, man. I think it I think it's kind of good. How could it not be? <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, I've I built it up enough, so I hope it is, but um yeah, it was, you know, it's been a long time coming and it was kind of like it is funny too because it would be the kind of thing where we we think that we're a really active band, but then anytime we post online or something like, "All right, we're doing this tour," you know, because it's for us we're like, "Well, we still have kind of done some Oh, uh, we'll do, you know, two weeks to a month a year or something. And every time we post like a tour poster, someone will comment like, oh, damn, you guys are still together. I thought you broke up. You know, <laughs> we're like, dude, we're working on this band. Like we're still writing songs. We're still touring as much as makes sense. No, this is good because you're getting those uh, reunion dollars. That's big now. So, you <laughs> no. know, every time you take a little break, people think you're gone. And then it's like, oh, we're back. We're reunited. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's true. Maybe that's true. Yeah. I, uh, we could have played our cards better on that one because I feel like a lot of bands do the full like we're breaking up tour. Yeah. And then in a shorter time than eight years, they come back and reunite. Whereas for us, we just didn't break up. And now we're putting out a record eight years later just because time flies, not because we didn't want to, you know, and everyone's like, all right, just a bunch of lazy musicians, I guess, <laughs> you know. <laughs> no, here's what you do. Market it as a reunion record and tour and make up some story about a big fight or something like that and how you guys overcame it. Damn. All right. Cool. You're yeah. hired. This is great advice. This is a show of ideas, Sean. This is a show <laughs> of ideas. I can tell, man. They're flying. <laughs> They're flying fast. So, Sean, you have joined Jerome's dream on guitar. Did you read about this? Did you hear about this? I have heard that I have joined Jerome's dream. Yes. Yeah. It's uh yeah, that's something I didn't really expect to happen like, you know, when I first heard Jerome's dream. Yeah. That's big news. How did it happen? Tell us about it. Well, there were sort of whispers, you know, like 5, I guess it would be 5 years ago now that Jerome's dream were going to reunite. And I had never known anyone in Jerome's dream, but um the other members of Loma Prieta had known Jeff, I guess, right when Jerome's dream broke up, you know, in the early 2000s, Jeff moved from, uh, from New York to San Francisco. And so he had somehow like been in the same social circle with, with Val and Derek and the guys from, uh, from Loma Prieta kind of prior to my knowing them. And so they'd always be like, Jeff's out here somewhere, man. But (laughs) 
you know, but it was kind of like they knew him, then they lost touch with him, had no access to Jeff, couldn't ask him any questions, you know. So anyway, I started hearing that they were going to reunite in 2018. And then one day I got this mysterious email and it was Eric and he's like, hey, it's Eric from Jerome's Dream. Uh, we were talking about playing some shows and we were curious if, you know, like Loma Prieta would want to play with us. You know, you're the first band that came to mind. And I like literally thought someone was fucking with me. You know what I mean? Like I was like, man, like someone's playing with my emotions here, you know, because because I love Jerome's dream. And yeah, it it seemed like even though I'd, I'd sort of heard through the rumor mill, this was, I think, prior to them, like announcing that they were going to do anything. So anyway, so Eric's like, yeah, man, you want to like get on a phone call and we can like, you know, see what this is about. And so I got on a phone call with Eric and it was like. Dude, I was nervous as if I was like going on a date or something, you know, Yeah. but because first off, I'm just not in that situation very often where I have to like get on a phone call ever in my life. And I have arranged my life that way because I'm bad on the phone. But yeah, it was, it was just sort of like talking to Eric and he's such a, um, he's such like a level headed and like interesting person to talk to. And he was just like so enthusiastic about them playing together again and was saying that they'd written all the stuff they were super psyched on and you know, just talking about how he kind of like lost touch for the most part with the other members and how like happy they were to be back at it. So of course I was, you know, I and everyone else in Loma Prieta were like, absolutely. Just tell us when, like, we'll be there. We love your band. This is going to be great. So we ended up booking a tour with them, an East coast tour in 2019. And it went really well. And I guess in the, in the sort of like intervening time before that tour, Jeff hit me up and he's like, Hey, you know, I live in San Francisco. We should just hang out. And so I like went and hung out with Jeff, which was another one of those things like the phone call with Eric, where I was like, man, this is strange. I'm just going to hang out with someone. I just some a couple old dudes hanging out, I guess, <laughs> getting a beer, you know, like, what is this going to be like? I never do this because all my, my whole social life is like this organic thing where I'm like, basically like meeting people at shows and you know. Exactly. Yeah. I, I've been in that same situation. You're like, what am I going to do? What's it going to be? Like? Right. I'm like, this just feels like something that normal people do. And I'm not a normal person. Like <laughs> I'm going to go just like hang out with some dude that I don't know. What are we going to do? Like what? I know. How I'm long like, am I going to have we... to be there? Right. Like, how does this work? What do you do? <laughs> um, but it ended up being super cool. Like I immediately, you know, it was like in the first minute I was like, Oh, Jeff's fucking awesome, man. This guy's great. And so yeah, he we is. became buds and, and yeah, he's, he's the best. I had Jeff and Eric on this podcast back when it was still called the Northeast scene mm -hmm. and great guys, great guys. And I was so happy that, uh, I can't remember if it was before Eric moved out to San Francisco, but you know, he moved out there and the band just stayed together and kept writing. And I, I was really happy for them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's awesome. And it is one of those things too, this sort of an aside, but like, you know, when I was talking about how, when I was growing up, I had, I had people to work on music with who, who were really talented and who I was like very like fortunate to have around, but I had such a hard time finding people who like wanted to do it, like with the frequency that I did. So like knowing and playing with those guys now, I always can't help it. I'm sort of like, man, I'm jealous that when you guys were 17, 19, 21, whatever, you like had each other and you were like approaching it with this like ferocity, you know, where you just like couldn't get enough. You wanted to like do whatever it took to get in a car and tour the US and all this kind of stuff. And those and the interesting thing is those guys like still have that same exact 
like level of energy and sort of attitude towards it, which is like, for me, it's like, I'm trying to keep up because I feel my age now, you know what I mean? So it's like <laughs> the level of, the level of enthusiasm that uh, Jeff and Eric are bringing to the band is like totally inspiring and definitely is like helping me to like level up just sort of my like ambitions towards the band being good, I think, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But anyway, going back. So it was like, went on a tour with, with their band and they toured a lot in 2019. It seemed like they were out for basically like six months with a few little breaks. And then I ended up getting a phone call from Eric kind of at the beginning of 2020. And he was like, Hey, we, uh, we have some dates booked in Europe, but we need like a, a guitar player, like a second guitar player to come with, like, would you be interested? And I of course was like, well, it's funny because, you know, I've never done, I've never like filled in in a band before you know that kind of thing like it's never been it's been offered but it's always like my attitude towards playing in bands has always kind of been what i like about it like i don't i of course like playing shows but my favorite parts of being in bands are like the creative aspect like i really like writing songs and i like like you know nitpicking and getting into all that stuff and i really really like making records like a you know production is my favorite probably my favorite part and i think my strong suit in being in a band because i'm not like, I'm like, I'm not a great guitar player. I know how to make shit sound fucked up, and I like doing that. See, here, I, I'm thinking you must be great to join Jerome's dream, because that's some pretty <laughs> intricate stuff. Well, it's definitely, like, the kind of thing where I'm like, we align really well, you know? It's... Yeah. As far as... I mean, I'm sure I've had a, a lot of, like, influence from them. I love their band from the time I first heard them. I think I first heard their band probably around the time they broke up Mm -hmm. and was immediately like a big fan. Anyway, yeah, when they asked if I would like come play guitar for them, they're like, yeah, we have like, you know, six shows or something in Europe. Like, do you want to come play these shows? And I immediately, you know, I didn't even have to think about it. I was just like, yeah, of course. You know, like I had never considered it for anyone else that had asked, but I've, it's like, I love hanging out with those guys. Their band is one of my favorites, you know, so didn't really have to give it any thought. And so then like at the time, Eric was living in LA and so he um he came up and he and Jeff and I played and it was like immediate we were just playing their songs you know like they had kind of said like we're going to play these 10 songs or whatever and I kind of figured them out partially but the musical chemistry was so there kind of immediately I was like dude this is great and I think we all walked away from we practiced for a weekend and we were all kind of like dude this sounds really fucking good this is crazy so that was kind of like how it came together, but that was February of 2020. Ah. And we were supposed to go on this tour in April. And so right before the end times. <laughs> right, right, exactly. So I remember it being this funny thing where it was like we played and then we had like another weekend scheduled. And then that was like in mid-March or something that we were supposed to play again. And it was sort of like me texting Jeff, like, hey man, this COVID thing looks kind of bad, huh? And he's like, Yeah, I don't know. We already have the plane tickets for this tour though. And I'm like, Yeah those are probably, this is probably not going to happen though, right? You know, like we're like looking at this thing, like it seems very unlikely that as bad as this is looking, that somehow like it's just going to clear itself up and we're going to be able to go on tour. I didn't believe it until New York City shut itself down. Yeah. Because I was like, I just thought it was another hype like SARS or bird flu thing. It was hard for me to imagine that it was going to be, I mean, I think we all kind of feel that way. And especially for you, like being in New York was like a whole other level, you know, it seemed maybe it was just a media portrayal, but it seemed like that was really some serious end time shit as far as 
you know, looking at it from an outside perspective. It was because I had never experienced anything like that before. And it, it was it was very confusing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's really redefined a lot of things, I think, you know? Yeah. But anyhow, yeah, that was kind of how it how it came to be that I started like playing music with those guys, you know? And then later Eric moved up here and it was like when Eric moved up here, then it became, you know, it was kind of the same thing where it was 2020 and the only people that I would hang out with were Eric and Jeff and, you know, obviously my partner who I live with, but, um, and like the Loma guys and that was it. And so since we were hanging out all the time, we're like, it just sort of made sense that we should go and try and get in the studio and just play. So kind of like once it felt safe enough to do that, we started getting in the studio and playing and it kind of, kind of coincided also with me being done um, recording this new Loma Prieta record. And I kind of have this bad habit of because bands always have downtime, you know, I end up like finishing a project with a band and then like subconsciously. I can't stop working on music. So I like start new bands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And in, in, in this case, I joined a pre-existing band, which is something I'd never really done before, but same kind of thing where I'm like, all right, man, well, I did it again. I could have had some peace and quiet, but now I just got to fucking work full time and play in bands full time and work on my house full time. And, you know, like your, your side band became Jerome's dream and you're, you're on the new <laughs> record, right? You recorded the new record with them. I did. I did. Yeah. That's pretty massive. It's a good move. <laughs> it felt, it felt cool. You know, it just, it just worked out, but well, it was funny too, because we, the three of us started playing and kind of like immediately, I feel like in the first practice or two, we definitely had like song ideas. And I think we were all, I mean, I was definitely pushing initially, like, this is a new band. What, what should we call this band? You know, like that kind of thing. And it kind of was, I think we were living in that land for a couple months where it was like, we're writing stuff and it just kept like amassing and the songs were really good. And then the more we all listened to them, we're like, dude, it would be so ridiculous to not have this be called Jerome's Dream because it sounds fucking like Jerome's Dream. Yeah, plus like two members of Jerome's Dream. Well, I mean, wait, how many people are in the band? It's it's Eric and Jeff and you. Is it just the three of you? Yeah, it's just the three of us now, yeah. Okay, so yeah, I mean, two out of three of the people are Jerome's Dream. So by math itself, it kind of has to be Jerome's Dream. <laughs> I think so. I'm not numbered. Like, what am I going to do, you know? Yeah. But yeah, it was kind of, it was just that funny thing where we like crossed over into that realm where we're like, I guess this is a Jerome's dream record we're writing or it's Jerome's dream by a different name, you know, cause it sounds like Jerome's dream. And there's just something very specific about the way that Eric and Jeff play together, you know, that, that I came to realize, you know, it's funny also when you've listened to a band a lot and then to like go on the inside and see how the mechanics of it work. And I'm like, oh, like I totally get why they sound like this. Like I could never, um, I could never like surgically like pick it apart until I sort of was in the writing process with them, but everything is so rhythmic in that band. And I think there's a lot of crazy dynamics that happen with the rhythm section that yeah. is unique, you know? And so, and just playing styles, you know, they are someone I draw from either directly or subconsciously. And I didn't discover them until much later because mm -hmm. I don't know, I would get locked into one genre and kind of hang out there. But now I'm listening to everything. And, you know, even like uh, when I had them on the show, uh, what, what's that 2003? What was that last record that they put out that Iodine reissued? Oh, uh, Presents. Yeah. Even with Presents, like they're talking about how people didn't like the vocals initially. Even though that vocal style I love, I kind of like... Mm -hmm 
draw from that because the the band I'm doing now is more in that world, like of that sound than anything oh. else. So there's just there's just a lot to to draw th- from either subconsciously or directly. There's a lot of good stuff there. I agree. I agree. It's interesting. I mean, it's helping me. And I, you know, I think that's sort of a one of the great things about playing music with people. It's kind of like every time you play with somebody who ha- who has a unique approach, you like end up just sort of like by osmosis, like picking up aspects of how they play and like you learn tricks and things that make music more interesting by playing with people that do interesting things. And so, you know, yeah, with the, with those two guys and the way they play together, it's definitely like, it just is always going to sound like Jerome's dream. Like, you know what I mean? It's like the sound of the band has a, an awful lot to do with the rhythm section, which I hadn't, I guess I knew that. I mean, every part of that band is just sort of like off the wall and I can't really compare it to anything else, you know? Exactly. It's, it's a very unique band coming, you know, their the approach and the influences and everything are just sort of like, I don't think anyone else has sort of like done it the way they've done it. I think that's a great thing to to have something like that that doesn't particularly sound like anything else. Yeah, I mean, I love it. It's what I've always kind of sought, you know? And it's definitely what I was... Um, once I, you know, once I sort of got a foothold into being into punk rock and stuff, that was what I was always seeking out in within this, you know, music world was like bands that were sort of undefinable, I guess, you know, that's like prerequisite for stuff that kind of moves me. And, you know, it's like bands that you just that are unmistakable, I guess. Is that what you go for when you're writing too? Well, I don't know if there's so much uh, specific thought, you know, it's being in a band is a weird thing because it does end up being the combination of the people involved. Mm -hmm. And so like, I never know how things are going to come out and it's always a surprise in a way. And it's like, you're in this room with people and no matter sort of like how the parts get introduced or whatever, everybody's parts come together and you're sort of like, like until you hear it back, you don't really know what you're working with in a way. And so it's funny because, you know, I mean, you're a musician, like, you know, you'll have those moments where you're playing music with people and you like record a little demo of the song or whatever. And sometimes you listen back like that night at home and you're like, man, this kind of sucks. <laughs> or, or there are times where you're like, dude, this is better than I even thought it was, you know, like that kind of thing. Yeah. The, like uh, the thing I'm doing now, we record a lot and often don't go back and listen to it. Mm-hmm. And thank goodness, one of the guys in the band brought something back and they're like, listen to this. And I'm like, wait, this is us. Like I'm playing that. <laughs> that's cool like we we, and i was like we need to make a habit of actually listening to what we record you know we'll do recording sessions and listen back to it like this is good (laughs) yeah that's that's what it takes you got to delegate you know it's like yeah you're like all right well on the first week of the month i'll be the guy that you know someone someone has to take that role go back and listen to the practice tapes and you know mine all the um all the cool ideas because, you know, oh, that's, things come up. That's good advice. And I'll never be that guy because I just have too much going on. <laughs> I don't I don't have time to do anything. So, all right, that's good. We're going to yeah. delegate that task. Yeah, yeah. You got to find or even find a find like a, uh, you know, if, you, if you're a four piece, you find like a fifth member who their only job is to come and find the good riffs, you know, <laughs> you find, some, find someone from the outside. Then I guess then you're really turning into some, uh, you know, like boy band Backstreet Boys shit. If you start bringing in outside people and producers, we're know. not big enough to have a uh, outside person yet. You know, well, you know, eventually, it's, it's something to strive for or not. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, there's a lot of exciting things happening. We've got 
the new Jerome's Dream record coming, The Gray in Between, that comes out May 5th, right? That's right, yeah. We're excited about that. So pumped about that, yeah. I'm uh, very much looking forward to it. We have a uh, we have a U.S. tour that is planned to coincide with that. Full U.S.? A full U.S. tour. Well, a U.S. tour aside from the West Coast, because we did that very recently, but everywhere else. And I don't want to say everywhere, because someone out there is going to be like, Dude, you're not playing Billings, Montana. And we're probably, I don't think we're playing Billings. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. we're doing as much of a full US tour as as I've ever done almost. And uh, it's going to be awesome. Amazing. And there's a new Loma Prieta record coming out. What's the record called again? Tell the people the name and when they can expect it, if that's announced yet. Uh, the, the new Loma Prieta LP called Last is coming out June 30th on Death Wish. And... We have some tour dates we're working on for that, uh, TBA. So it's got to feel good. You've got a new record coming out on Iodine. You've got another record coming out on Death Wish. You're, you're doing it all. That's got to feel pretty good. It feels great, yeah. I'm, I feel so lucky for the support you know, from, from both of those labels and um, just to still be doing it, I guess. you know, It's great to, I guess, just that I have all these bandmates who are still passionate about music and keep me excited about music. And, you know, there's nothing I like better. It's, it's kind of what keeps me going. It's what I'm, you know, like I said earlier, it's kind of like what I consider myself to be doing with my life, even though it's not really, it's never been, you know, my uh, primary source of income. What is your primary source of income? What are you doing? What are you doing when you're not out there on the road performing? Well, I work. Uh, I work in the photo industry. I'm a uh, I'm a post production guy. You know, I do digital tech work and retouching on commercial photo shoots and that kind of thing. And I've been doing it for a long time. That's awesome. Isn't it great to have that backup too? Like, I never, you know, I've been in bands since I'm 24 years old, I guess. But I was never in a band that toured full time or took off or anything like that. So I've always worked jobs mm-hmm. and I did fall ass backwards into a well-paying career which is right. which is very nice so I'm I'm glad that I have that part covered now I just need to build up the music thing a little more yeah I mean you know it it all uh it all happens when it's supposed to I think and as uh idealistic as I was when I was growing up it's at some point it was kind of like well I definitely it's like I don't have any thing to fall back on. So I need to figure out how to make some money. And I mean, I was kind of raised in the punk scene to think that making money through music was sort of like an evil pursuit, which that's hyper idealistic. And I kind of feel like people in punk no longer feel as uh, strongly about that as they did, at least in the punk community I grew up in. But anyway, aside from that, you know, it's like, like bands are the worst possible way that I've ever found to make money. (laughs) Like, you know, the people I know who seem to be making a go of it typically like have carved out some other little spot in the music industry, I guess, where they're making their money, be it screen printing or booking or having a label or whatever it is, because the actual act of like being in a band, it's like, even if the band somehow on paper looks profitable, which it probably won't because everything's expensive, then there's still like four or five of you. And it's just such a long shot for anyone to really like make any substantial living doing it. 
But that doesn't, you know, that's no reason not to do it. Yeah. And by the way, this whole attitude of like, you're playing music, you shouldn't want money or expect money or get paid money, especially in the punk scene. I don't know how this started, but we need to stop this. It's like some deep seated capitalism game or something like, oh, you're in a punk band. You can't get paid. You shouldn't want to get paid. You go to the venue. The venue takes a cut of the merch. The venue gets all the money from the bar. You don't get any piece of that. Maybe you get paid. Maybe you don't know. We're in a band. We're out there working. Pay us. Now, we're not saying, <laughs> you know, we're not gouging, but uh, musicians should be paid. They should be paid. Yeah, I feel like everyone else in the down the chain gets paid. Bands often don't. I don't really know how to remedy that, but, you know. I, someone recently, I can't remember who it was, was talking, I was having a conversation with someone where they were like, you know, it felt like up until recently asking for more than $5 for a punk show was sometimes frowned upon. Yeah. And it was like, man, have you looked at, you know, like 80s black flag posters? They were charging $5. Do you know what it costs to buy like a gallon of milk in 1985 or a car? Like it costs like one sixth as much. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, dude, we got to catch up. And so- Something happened, you know, during the pandemic where it started seeming like now I go to punk shows and it seems like people charge 15, 12, 15 bucks for punk shows and no one's upset by it. And I'm kind of glad to see it. And I don't mind paying it because to me, like, I mean, that's a that's a cheap date. You know what I'm saying? Like going to see, (laughs) I'm like, dude, I can go see like the some fucking piece of shit movie for 20 bucks or I can go to an awesome punk show for 12. Like, that's a great deal. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, when we were growing up, I don't, yeah, shows were five, 10, 15 bucks at the most. But I, I have to, I have to say, I'm startled though. Maybe I need to go back on my words here of paying musicians. Uh, a well known band that we all know and love is going on tour soon. And I, I did purchase a ticket. Guess how much mm-hmm. the ticket was? God, I hope you're not going to tell me like 60 bucks or something. No, $66. 66. Maybe they were trying to do some. Uh, sign of the beast shit with this you know what i mean yeah like are they super metal was it was it 66 and 66 cents or something um no fuck all right maybe i haven't been paying enough attention like i went to see mashuga mm-hmm. in 2011 and i remember that being 44 dollars, i think for one ticket mm. and I, I was like okay it's mashuga right but like yeah 66 dollars is i just i don't know man it's it, it just seems like too much but it's fine. That's kind of painful. I mean, I you know, you know, Ticketmaster is getting at least uh, like forty four dollars of that. They're getting the full Meshuga ticket price out of that. I think that's it. I think it's all the charges. Like I, I would pay forty dollars to see this band, no problem. But uh, you know, maybe I shouldn't blame them for all the Ticketmaster charges, or maybe I should. I don't know. I'll think about it. Yeah, the whole th- listen, the whole thing needs to change. But you know, it's gonna be a long road. <laughs> <laughs> Pearl Jam tried it in the 90s. True. Jerome's Dream will try it again on their upcoming tour and only play right. off uh, the beaten path venues with zero charges, right? That's right, man. Billings, Montana. You. <laughs> it's going to happen. Well, Sean, I'm very excited for all the new music. I can't wait to hear everything. And I want to thank you for taking the time to come on the show. Keith, thank you so much. I, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed talking to you. And thanks for letting me. Uh, you know, ramble on about all this stuff. Had a lot of fun. Of course. Hopefully I'll catch you out there when you're playing. I would love that.
And there you have it. Sean Leary. Great conversation. Great guy. It was awesome to hear more about Loma Prieta. You know, I discovered them more recently. I love everything I've heard from last so far. That's going to be a great record, I can tell already. And now he's in Jerome's Dream, too. A very welcome addition. I mean, The Gray in Between is easily one of my favorite records of the year, and definitely one of my favorite from Jerome's Dream. So, awesome. Really looking forward to going to that show and meeting Sean and the rest of the band in person. Also, I've never seen Jerome's Dream, so that'll be exciting. So yeah, great conversation. Thank you so much, Sean, for coming on the show. So how are we doing? How are we doing? It's Memorial Day weekend. The weather is fantastic. Not too hot, not too cold. Perfect. Sunny. I hope everybody got to go out and do something. Uh, I didn't really. There's a lot of stuff to catch up on here. I'm getting ready for this run of Darling Fire shows. There's some equipment stuff I have to work out. I wanted to get some chores done, laundry, clean up. There's a lot of stuff to do around here. And uh, my recurring story lately is uh, I need to make more time for myself. You know, I mentioned that I'm back in therapy, and that's really helping out with some things I go through on a regular basis. But something she pointed out, which I didn't even realize, is that I sort of turned all of my hobbies into jobs, right? Podcast started out as a hobby. And, well, it started out as a hobby, like the first four episodes. But right away, it became weekly. And as soon as it became weekly, it became a bit more of a job. And look, the podcast is great, and I love doing it, but it's a lot of work. Don't be fooled. It is a lot of work. So there's that. And uh, music, you know, music was more of a hobby before, taking it a little more seriously now that I'm in a band that gets out and tours a bit and is on a label and all that stuff. So I just need to take more time for me. And I did that this past week. There was no interviews to do, which was great. I'm playing Resident Evil 2 Remake. Has anyone out there played it? I never played it. I'm playing it for the first time, and it's terrifying. And I haven't even gotten to Mr. X yet. So once he's on my trail, uh, it's going to be a lot scarier, I imagine. But I made a little bit of progress in that game, and it just felt really good. I felt like I accomplished something, and I'm having fun. And uh, did you ever play any of those new Wolfenstein games, the ones that they remade? There's a DLC from one of them called Wolfenstein The Old Blood, and I got stuck on the final boss in 2018 and just never finished it. So I fired it up last night and beat the boss. And I really felt like I accomplished something. I was so happy. That, was, that made me happier than anything I've done recently. You know, just taking some time out, relaxing, and uh, accomplishing something in a game. I don't know. It makes me happy. And did anyone watch that PlayStation event recently where they announce everything that's coming up? I think the most exciting news out of that is the Metal Gear Solid 3 remake. Now. I haven't played any Metal Gear games past part one, but they're releasing this legacy collection that has the first five games, meaning the very, very first one, the second one, and Metal Gear Solid 1, 2, and 3. So I'm going to get that because I've only played one and part of two. I would like to go through that series. It's a highly acclaimed series. I haven't played all of them, and I want to. So I commit to sitting around more and just watching TV or playing video games or doing something that isn't work 
so that I don't burn myself out. I have to. I have to. But that's it for this week. So we're moving into June, and June is a really exciting batch of shows. You know, this whole year has been great. I think this has been the best year of the podcast ever. We've had such a run of incredible guests, you know, people that I just dreamed of speaking to. We've had on the show at this point, and June is no exception. It's going to be awesome. So I mentioned last week that I'm celebrating six years clean this month, right? Great, good, good for me. Okay. So at the end of the month, at the meetings that I go to, you know, they celebrate the anniversary. So everybody who's celebrating a year or more of clean time, they go and they sit and you share and, you know, it shows people that this thing works and great. That's all good. So I've been speaking at a couple meetings and, you know, just thinking about the past a lot and everything that led here and everything I was going through uh, back when I first got clean. And that brings me back to the band Gates. This band almost single-handedly got me through that whole period. I really connected with their music on a deep level, and it just really spoke to everything I was going through at that time. So we are going to end the show with Not My Blood by Gates. So I'm back next week with a new episode and a new guest. So thanks everybody for listening, and until next time. Contract to exist without.